Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. Welcome to the first radio show of 2018. Jeff, how goes it? Goes good. How you holding up? It feels like we just did one of these yesterday, but it's been over a month. We may have to start doing episodes bi-weekly. No, twice-weekly. What's that called twice-weekly? Bi-weekly. Okay. It's late in the day. Maybe every day. We just start doing them daily. We'll just record our, our team meetings. Anyway, what's going on? Do you have a resolution? I, I never get into that stuff, man. Uh, things are good as as they are. I'm happy. No, no, no need to switch things up. All right. I'm more well, concerned about you right now getting ready to get out of town to Japan. How much more you got to do before you fly out? Oh, man, not too much. I mean, it's a 12-hour flight. Get plenty done on the flight. We just, on the last flight, I rewrote the Invest with the House book. I think we're going to turn our attention next to either updating. So we're trying to bring them all through 2017. So updating either global asset allocation or global value or shareholder yield, or all three. What do you think is more timely? I, I think people would probably like global value the most because it's been at least four years, five years maybe, since we did it. Lots changed in that time. Uh, I don't know. We'll stop going to Japan to ski. No, that's the whole done. point. Is I have to, By far, the best work I do is on planes. And it's sad because Nowadays, you have TV and internet on planes, but back when you used to not have either of those, I was by far the most productive I've ever been. Although the last plane flight I just took, the stewardess, we were coming over the Rockies back to LA from home over Christmas, and the stewardess said it was, she's been in, in the business for over 10 years, the most turbulence she's ever experienced. Stuff was flying in the air, people were screaming and cursing and crying and praying, it was out of old airplane movies. I flew back on a connector from Atlanta with a hell of a lot of UGA fans who were flying out of here for the game. And as we landed, they uh, launched into an impromptu uh, Georgia chant. The Go entire, dogs! The entire plane erupted. I had a bunch of uh, Sooners when I was flying. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, we have got a lot to cover today. It's a, a hodgepodge, but I thought it would be fun if you gave us a quick recollection of Congratulations. What is your most retweeted tweet of all time, I think? You know, it's not surprising in a year like 2017 that, that my most popular tweet, and it's probably order of magnitude most popular tweet, somehow is construed as, as related to Trump. And I forget the exact words, but I, I said along the lines of for the first time in history, we're going to finish the year with the stock market up every single month. And so sure enough, this is the funny part. This explains so much about society and the way news is consumed and repurposed. If you go read the responses to the tweet, they're, they're in like one of four categories. It's either my Democratic friends being like, thanks, Obama. You know, you set the stage for this amazing economic boom. Or it's MAGA and someone saying, you know, Trump, see, this is all because of Trump. 
And the third category is, of course, like the gold bugs who say something along the lines of, you know, it's the Fed and it's manipulated and it's all some sort of scheme. And it's just kind of funny because if you go back to my tweet from election night, my takeaway is that the politics has nothing to do with it. Well, to, to clarify, your tweet didn't mention anything about president's politics or whatnot. It was simply the market being Sure, up, right? right. And so everyone just wants to construe it for whatever political sort of topic they, they want. But but the tweet when Trump was elected, I said, you know, look, and I think, I, don't, I can't remember if I said it before or after the election, but I said the person that wins the election is totally inconsequential. Mm-hmm. However, it, it is humorous to me that despite all of the sound and fury the past year and politics and everything else, just news flow, everyone going kind of insane. You had the smoothest stock market year in history, you know, and it Mm -hmm. seems to be continuing. By the way, if we finish up January, we're knocking on the door for the longest months in a row streak ever, which was, I, I have it as 15 in the 1950s. Other people has it as 12. So we're either at the longest streak ever or getting ready to cross the longest streak ever. So how do you personally interpret that? Totally meaningless. You, you don't see <laughs> no, I mean, this look, as... No, I mean, look, look, look bull no. markets... I mean, if you go back to my old paper, Where the Black Swans Hide, you know, you basically come away with the research that bull markets, uptrends, are low volatility. And you can go through these periods of years where there's just not that much volatility. And this has happened numerous times over the past century. Granted, it's it's particularly unique right now, particularly kind of extended, but you have seen these long periods. Now, what happens is, is when markets move into a downtrend, and we've shown this in dozens, if not, you know, 30 plus markets around the world, equities, bonds, everything, commodities being the only exception, was that markets were much more volatile when they enter a downtrend than when an uptrend. And the reason is simple, is that people react totally differently to losing money than to making money. Use a different part of their brain. Scientific studies have shown this in markets. I forget the exact statistic, how much more volatile they are. But you, so that's one of the reasons you always see the worst days always happen in downtrends, but also the best days. And it's called volatility clustering. So that's one of the reasons trend following works is you avoid those periods. So you have a year like last year, which is in an uptrend. And so it's mellow, calm, chill until it's not. And then you see, uh, a downtrend where, where everyone starts to freak out. But do you see this this streak of consecutive months up? Do you see this more as a bullish indicator of sustained momentum in one direction? Or do you fall in the other camp of it's being stretched too far, it can't sustain, it's got to pull back? The former is correct. I think in an uptrend, it's everything you want to see. It's making new highs. It's Everything is copacetic. But anytime, if you look at the stock market... As the market goes up, you're simply stealing returns from the future and the vice versa when it goes down. So you're getting more returns now at the expense of more returns later. And so trend following and the market going up, hey, that's fantastic. Market's getting more expensive. So future expected returns get lower. If you're an older person right now, you say that's fantastic. If you're a young person, just starting out there investing career, you say, man, I want the market to crash by 80%. That way I can start to dollar cost average into the rest of my adult life. Just kind of depends on your perspective. What a wonderful segue into uh, some of our other topics here. We're not going to talk about Trump and politics the whole time, sadly. Do you have more to say? No, (laughs) I don't. All right. 
you posted several tweets of the week that had some interesting stuff, which I'm kind of lumping into this general category of signs of the top. Uh, one of which was U.S. investors stock. Hey, technically, I think it's signs. Is it coming from signs of the bull market? These are two separate. So tweets of the week is my weekly, which, by the way, is usually every two or three weeks, curated favorite tweets. And it's basically a, a research compilation of the best quotes, articles, uh, white papers, clips, everything. It's like the most valuable thing I do, by the way, in my own mind. No one seems to care. I think it should be an actually entirely separate business that that people should be doing, human curated offering. Anyway, I also did a separate list called Signs of the Bull Market, which was any link that I found that was completely absurd about what's going on in this current environment. Yeah, different things. I read Two that. different things. Okay. That, that was good. Okay. I read that. This was more of just the label I threw on the... the okay. Uh, You're just making up your own category. Why not? So you had uh, one which was U.S. investors' stock allocations are approaching highest levels since 2000. Then we have stocks as a percentage of household assets adjusted for pensions. Um, just hit the second highest ever. What, 41%, I believe? And then there's something from Jesse Livermore talking about uh, pension funds and their future return assumptions. Now, let me stop here real quick. Do you see absurd pension fund estimations as just par for the course? Or is that in and of itself another sort of sign of just too much rosiness? There's a couple of problems with the pension fund assumptions. One is they're always right around 8%. Some of them have started to move down to this seven is, and a half. This is seven and a half, yeah. Okay, same difference. doesn't matter. But... It makes no sense to think, always think in nominal returns when inflation's at different levels. So, 8% returns when you're in a world of 8% inflation and you have 10% bond yields is totally different than 8% returns when you live in a world of zero inflation and you have 2% bond yields. Because the bonds right there, you're investing percentage of the allocation in bonds, but it affects every asset class. Okay. So, one, the pension funds should target their expected returns based on a just a very crude expected returns algorithm. So the only reason they say 8% because that's what they've done for the past 40 years has nothing to do with what's going to happen going forward. So almost everyone, if you look at just the simple math of stocks and bonds, stocks, US stocks are new about 4% in the next 10 years, bonds two to three. So no matter which way you put that portfolio together, you're going to have somewhere between two to 4% returns. None of that approaches 8%. You can't add those two to get together to get 8%. So there's two issues I have right now. And we wrote a paper on this a couple of years ago called Pension Funds Investing with Their Eyes Closed, Fingers Crossed. What if 8% is 0%? Something like that. So one, there's this, the funding status of pension funds. That'll be a societal problem. Two, they should do a better job of adjusting their target to reflect real returns and or what's going on in the markets. Now, one, in the back of my head, there's part of me that says, okay, is there something we're all missing? We all being all the large money managers like GMO, AQR, research affiliates, all the way down the list, Jesse Limore just, just mentioned that all, John Bogle, all expect 4% returns for stocks-ish. Some are zero, some are six, but nowhere near 10 which is historical. And you know what bonds are going to do. Bonds are going to do two and a half, whatever they're yielding. So is there something we're all missing? We, my joke is always, is Elon Musk going to find perpetual motion energy generator? 
Are there going to be diamonds in the core of Mars? I, I don't know. But that that is the more likely answer is no. It's not something we're all missing, but it just it's not going to matter until it does. And so it starts until returns are poor and pension funds are failing and society's you know throwing a fit about it. So my last issue is why isn't anyone doing anything about it? Meaning I mean, sticking your head in sand is a lot easier. Yeah, I mean there's there's so but why aren't any investors if you look at the institutional or even the wirehouse recommended allocations, they may shift from hey, here's our 60/40 to 55/45. But they really don't make the large scale changes that that need to be made in my mind to to move away from solving the problem. And so I don't know why. And so you actually have it happening more in the opposite direction, which is what you mentioned, which is a lot of stuff you see in a bull market, which is U.S. allocations hitting an all-time high, all these coincident indicators that setting up people for harder times. But solving the problem right now, it's sort of two issues. Solving the problem and it's a rosy definition is finding a way to sort of hit the target numbers pensions need because of these forward projections. And so I, there's and a that's great, not, and that's not going to happen. There's a great chart in one of the publications that says here's here's pension funds expected returns for each asset class, and that's the hilarity is they're all below eight percent. So you cannot put together any combination of these twenty assets. I think one was above, and it was of course private equity. And if you listen to our last podcast, if you haven't, go listen to it with Rasmussen. Which was, and I always mispronounce his name. How would you say Rasmussen? Dan Rasmussen. Rasmussen. Sorry, Dan. <laughs> is that a lot of the rosy returns from private equity probably aren't going to continue because private equity is also allocating at high enterprise value to EBITDA multiples relative to history. So their one possible outcome is to try to allocate to something that has a higher return, but it's probably not going to have a higher return. So there's a, there's a lot of simple answers to these problems, like most things, but no one's going to do it because it's career risk. It involves, example, for the pensions funds, having to go fund them to a higher funding percentage. There's all sorts of terrible takeaways that, that most people, it's just, it's like going back to going on a diet or, or something like that. It's just like, take your medicine. See, I was about to say that exact same thing. It we're, reminds, we're so in touch. It reminds me of Arnott. If you remember, we had him on, I believe that was his takeaway was... Uh, you know, take your medicine, expect lower returns. That's now, to be clear, reality. I mean, there are other asset classes, like if you were to ask me personally, I mean, look, there there's steps you can take, of course. It's the most basic one is moving away from U.S. equities. So if you move into foreign developed, foreign emerging, it's a lot cheaper. If you move into the cheapest bucket, it's even cheaper still. That's one. Or moving into, Rob probably talked about his three pillars, which are research pieces that talk about you know, adding things like emerging market debt and just a, a large global asset allocation for other asset classes. But even then, I, you know, I don't think you get to 8%. I mean, we do other things like trend following, et cetera. But I think just having realistic expectations is the most important first step. I was going to ask you this later on, but we might as well hit on it now. As we talked about before we came in here to do the recording, any particular broad asset class that you see is especially attractive right now. And in the example I referenced earlier before we started recording, I was looking at EM, emerging markets, but I thought that that was sort of getting to a country by country basis now where the entire broad market wasn't necessarily just a awesome no brainer anymore. Am I incorrect there? Emerging markets have had a great two year run. You know, we have been talking about them for quite a while. We wrote that article a couple of years ago called 
or 50% returns coming for emerging markets and commodities. And emerging markets have already hit that number, I think, in the past two years. They've just been going straight up. And commodities mixed bag, some of them, like uh, base metals and oil, have done great. Others, like agriculture, have not. But if you look at the valuation, it depends on how you weight them. But if you did a market cap weight, I think the, the, the PE is around 15. For developed, it's around 20, 22. And then for U.S., it's like 32. So still a lot cheaper. And historically, there's no real reason there should be a premium of one than the other. Now, emerging markets are up, but what would I be most excited about, the same thing we've been talking about for forever, is the cheapest quartile of stock markets. So that's 12 out of 48 or 45-ish investable developed markets and emerging. And that gets you to a P ratio of 12. And they, they were up huge 2017 and 2016, so they were at a PE of like nine or eight, but because they've gone up so much, they're now up to a stratospheric 12, but that's 12 versus that's still half of probably developed in a, almost a third of the U.S. Well, so if we pull back from a relative comparison of these markets and look at it just on a straight absolute basis. 12 let, is super cheap. I was about to say, let's say you, you inherit a million bucks. Are you actively going to dump that million into this uh, bucket with a PE 12 and be excited about it? Or are I mean, you hold that, off? That's, that's a totally separate question. Why, why would I just dump everything? So my, for example, we have our Cambria's retirement 401k or whatever, whatever our retirement plan is that we just started like a year ago, which can only invest in Vanguard. Cause that was like the cheapest. I, my, all of mine just dumps into emerging markets. I would love to invest in our, global value fund, which is, I think, superior, but it's not a choice, of course. So it just automatically goes all into emerging markets. But all mine in Bitcoin. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So yeah, I mean, on an absolute basis, I mean, historically, normal PEs are 15 to 20. And then, you know, it anything below that's cheap and anything above that gets to be expensive. But, but that's kind of the normal range. So 12 is and particularly... You know, because it's, it's so funny because people want to justify whatever they want to justify. Say, you know, no, no, no. Well, PE doesn't work. Look at what U.S. stocks have done. I said, well, what, what about the other 44 countries around the world? Somehow it doesn't work in the U.S., but it does what, for some reason, other countries are still this interest rate environment trading at 10 PEs. You know, people, people going back to the Trump, they fit their beliefs to any narrative they can think of. Confirmation bias. Yep. Exactly. All right. Circling back to where we were a moment ago, we were discussing the potential signs of a top year. That kind of bleeds into what the market's going to be for 2018. One of your recurring pieces is what you're doing with your own money and mm -hmm. your own asset allocation. I would assume you'll update that sometime soon, given 2018. You want to give us a preview? Oh, that's, the, that's the beauty of an automated process. There's really nothing to update. So for... Just an overview for the investors who aren't familiar. So I publish my financial situation, my broad allocation. It's obviously dominated by ownership of Cambria as well as a couple other private companies. But Cambria determining somewhere between 99 and 20 to 99% of my net worth. Zero to 99%, I guess. I don't know. It could, could go bankrupt or something. But the vast chunk. And then, of course... I have some farmland that I inherited that our families run for a while. We've been experimenting. I've we I've been experimenting with 
angel investing since 2014. That's a relatively small portion. But the vast majority is in public investments, of which it's all in the Trinity portfolios. And I don't even look at that. That's the beauty is that of an automated solution. I don't know why anyone would ever use anything else, honestly. And I don't care if you use Vanguard, Betterment, Schwab, whatever. It's just so easy. It's so simple. It's optimized. It's low cost. It's tax efficient. It's everything you want. Obviously, I prefer our Trinity portfolios to what those shops are doing, but those aren't bad either. So I just continually add money to those and take it out as needed. You know, the one difference was last year I mentioned I have an allocation to tail risk and strategies. And I would actually, I would add more to that after a year like last year. That's 10% of the publicly traded assets. I would be totally open to taking that up to 20. But I think the trigger for me would, would be moving into a downtrend. Because like, as we mentioned earlier, all of the historical volatility kind of switch occurs after the market moves into a downtrend. So what are you going to consider a downtrend? What you market long-term move? moving averages? So something like a 200-day, 10-month moving average. And I, I don't know that it has to be specific. And look, if it gapped down 20% overnight, like in 1987, I, I wouldn't add it then. But as we are existing in this environment of some of the lowest volatility on record, and the stock market just kind of moseying on up, the adding the tail risk. And, and the reason, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast and blog posts before and, and research papers is that the tail risk allocation to me is, is a very personal choice where it's not necessarily fit for everyone because a lot of people, I think there's a lot of steps you can make before you would want to do tail risk. But for someone particularly in the asset management industry, I think it makes even more sense. So you know, a lot of companies, we've talked to a couple big shops that also add this to their own company to try to reduce their exposure to the broad swing of the stock market and their revenues as well. So for me personally, as a CIO of an asset management company, it, it makes sense. So I, I would be totally comfortable taking it up to 20. And you could even see a scenario where I could take it up higher than that. Because to me, it's a bond substitute. And it acts as somewhat of like a fire or car insurance. You know, the, the best thing that can happen is it loses money because that means everything else is going up. Rewinding to just a moment ago when you said if uh, the market gapped down 20%, you would not put it in. You want to explain that in a little more well, detail? Well, I mean, if volatility anybody's... goes from 8 or 10 to 50 overnight, you know, an, an October 87 sort of event, then the tail risk strategies obviously would do very well. And the tail event has happened. Now, when are people probably most likely to add to tail sort of insurance is of course they're going to wait for it to happen and then, and then do it. You know, when, when, when most people probably go buy earthquake insurance, well, after earthquake happens, you know, cause it's fresh in their mind and it's a very rare event. So it, look, and then to be honest, and by the way, I guarantee you that I probably have more invested in sort of tail risk sort of allocation than 99% of the people in the country if not 99.9%. This is a, this is an outlier belief. It is not a common, widely held belief. To what extent have you done any studying of an initial drawdown and then the ensuing continued drawdown? The, the idea being, let me challenge that if you miss the 20% drawdown, it's not worth your time. You know, if you miss 20 is that indicative of you had another 20 to go and so you can still benefit? Well, I mean, I, th I think timing of, of something like this is, is difficult or challenging where, 
it's it's like trying to trade a bubble or like a mania like Bitcoin where where it's just going all over the place and the volatility is just crazy. So or it's like trying to pick a bottom in 2008 or 2009. You can make some educated guesses, but there's no reason the market didn't go down 60, 70, 80 percent in 2008, nine. I mean, it could have. I don't, I don't know why it, you could make an argument that that it, that it easily could have. I don't know. I, I think that the tail risk challenge is that when the volatility explodes, the value of the puts goes way up, obviously. And does the VIX stop at 40, 60, 80, 100? It's where it's like a very steep mountaintop or steeple where on the backside is just as sharp coming back down. And the good news is if you disagree with me, you can go short the fun. So all right, let's switch. And make it make a steady, uh, steady nut every month and have the sharp ratio of two probably. All right, let's switch gears to a topic which I know that you're not wildly enthusiastic about, but I have sort of pressed you on this, Bitcoin. So listeners, just as a quick context, we have an intern named Matt who works with us. Matt, thanks for all your your hard work. We had lunch with him the other day and Matt was telling us how virtually every one of his friends is invested in Bitcoin. And as a percentage of their savings, a large part of it is invested in Bitcoin. And we actually discussed the, the term investing versus speculating. And his take on it was that every one of his friends who were in it thoroughly believe it uh, to be a pure investment. They aren't really as aware of the speculative side of things. So as Meb and I have been talking about this over the last couple of days, what Bitcoin's taken another hit. It's now down 50% since it's high in a month. I think it's trading below 10,000 as we're talking. And so Meb and I were discussing how would you actually trade this in a somewhat intelligent manner and um, crunched a couple numbers or do you want to tell us what your uh, thought process well, look, is? I mean, we've talked about crypto quite a bit on this podcast i mean my, my views are have already been explained so i don't want to bore people with it here just go go back and listen to some of the old episodes but i, mean, I have no problem with crypto in general it's most people approach it in the same way they would approach any investment they're not familiar with they say well, I'm just going to buy it. What do you think about it? That's the question. They always say, Matt, what, what do you think about XYZ? It could be Tesla. It could be stocks in India. could be gold. In this case, it's Bitcoin. What do you think about Bitcoin? I say, man, that's, that's such a long answer to this very simple sounding question. But how does it fit into your investment plan? Does it help you achieve your goals? Are you, is it going to help you achieve saving for your child's college and then retirement? Is it generating any cash flows? Is there any sort of valuation? You know, all those questions don't really fit into a traditional plan. However, let's say you said you're undeterred and you want to invest no matter what, or want to trade no matter what. There are plenty of approaches that I think are just fine. No one's going to do them, but to at least have a process. So, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy some and I'm going to hold it for five years, or I'm going to hold it for 10 years. That's totally fine. You got to write it down and stick to it. Or I'm going to buy some but I'm going to buy a market cap weighted basket of the top 10 and I'm going to rebalance it once a year. And I'm going to do so in line with the global market portfolio. So assuming that's 200 trillion and cryptos rounding up are 1 trillion, that means you should invest a half a percent. So if you got a million bucks, that's $1,000 in a basket of cryptos. I'm fine with that as a hedge against somehow the global monetary system. I, I, I wouldn't do any of it, but uh, lastly, if you're going to own it, if you're going to buy it, you could use a trend following approach. 
you know, and we've modeled these out. We should probably publish the blog, but overlaying a 200 day, 50 day, it's so fast and volatile, something shorter, like a 10 day, they all work. So the way that trend following has always worked, they reduce volatility and reduce drawdown. Now, because it's so ridiculously volatile with vol up around 50 to 70 or something insane, you have drawdowns on, on Bitcoin already of 89% or whatever it is. But you remember, that's what stocks did in the 30s. Over what uh, parameter? No, that's just buying and holding it. And so if you then, you then use the moving averages, the long ones don't help as much because it's so volatile, moves so fast. So they take that 90% down to like 60. But you use like a 10-day and it takes it down to the 40s. So not bad. And I'm modeling this back to like 2013. If you take it back before that, there's there's no one no one was really using it. But that's totally reasonable to me. And so that would have you, and by the time this comes out, Bitcoin could be anywhere between 100,000 and 100, by the way. But that would have you out of two of the three parameters. And, and that's another choice. And people don't want to hear this, but a second totally reasonable thing to do would be to use multiple parameters. So you're never wedded to one. The same way that if you use just one trend following indicator on US stocks, 1987 rolls around. If you use the 200 day or longer, you would have been invested in stocks during the crash. And if you use 200 day or shorter, you would have been out and sitting in cash during the crash. So very different outcome. You lost 20% or didn't. Same thing with Bitcoin. You know, If you use multiple parameters, say you use the 200, the 50, and the 10 day, granted, I would, I would probably skew that to a lot of the shorter stuff, maybe use exponential, maybe use breakouts and new highs, new lows, rolling periods, whatever, but use multiple ones. You don't necessarily wet it to one parameter. So you scale in and out. So right now, when I looked at it as of today, which is Wednesday, the 17th, you would have been out of two of them. I think you would have been out of the 10 day and the 50 day and the 200 day. I think you have to go all the way down to 7,000 before you'd get out of that portion. Well, let me let me push you on this. Let's say I gave you 100 grand, just play money. It's on top of my million dollar inheritance. Exactly. You've gotten very rich all of a sudden. Play money. Just said, Meb, look, see if you can build this for me uh, or grow it for me with Bitcoin. What two metrics would you use? So I, I first of all, I would say it's going to be most of these there's so many problems with crypto even to begin most of these platforms i wouldn't trust they charge huge transaction costs in and out it's like a percent and a half i think even if you use coinbase or three and most of them only support a couple of the currencies so you can trade bitcoin cash ethereum and maybe litecoin or dog coin dogecoin i don't even know how to pronounce it there's actually a Ponzi coin. There's like there's like half the coins are meant with the express purpose of like literally if you read the the white paper, if they even have them, it's like we we will defraud you and take your money. This coin has no purpose. But I would say, look, you can use a basket of the top 5. There's no reason just to use one. Say take the basket of the top 5, overlay a couple moving averages on each of them, be be done with it. The problem is if you're paying 1.5% per in and out, like that's a huge toll already. Yeah, you can do a lot. Of, I mean, especially with like a 10 day or 20 day, you're going to be in and out a ton, wouldn't you? Well, I, I don't know. All right, let's go, go back to my earlier statement, which is just automate your finances and move on to something more productive. Hey, I'm just trying to address like topics option that trading. a lot of the listeners <laughs> like want, option want to trading. Hear. <laughs> All right, let's knock out a couple Twitter questions here. All right, Meb, if you had to buy one country and hold it for 10 years, which one would it be? 
is this meant purely from the standpoint of perspective returns? Do I also have to go live there? Is it like an extradition? I would assume it's returns, but my follow-up to this, which I was going to be more interested in, was would you be analyzing this purely by evaluation metric or would you throw any sort of qualitative factors on I this mean, as well? I mean, look, right now there's no question to me that, that Russia is probably the cheapest country and oil has been, and energy has been ripping up and you haven't seen a lot of the energy companies and stocks, also in the U.S., participate as much as, as the energy complex has. So there's divergence, one. So I think Russia is a fantastic place to be. Obviously, that makes half the podcast listeners queasy and, and nauseous even thinking about, which makes it probably even better. But, you know, the problem with some of these like smaller countries, like if I was to say Czech Republic, that only has like 10 qualifying stocks, whereas something like Japan has thousands and thousands and thousands of very deep market. So if it was, if I would, yeah, probably Russia. Russia. All right. Twitter question number two. Have you ever done a back test combining a simple moving average timing strategy overlaid with a value approach? For instance, going long an asset class while it's above its simple moving average, but below a historical multiple. Yeah, I mean, we, we wrote a whole paper on some ideas here on kind of val- combining value and momentum. There's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a hundred different ways to approach this. Some people like the way one of the ways we do it is we sort value stocks and momentum stocks and you can take the average or you can sort value stocks and then take the value stocks that have the best momentum. And then you could overlay a top down indicator based on the markets valuation and trend and hedge that portfolio, which is what we do on the flip side. You could do stuff like taking asset classes or uh, countries that are cheap, like our global Cape stuff, but then only buying them when they're above their long-term average or sorting them into momentum and then only buying them. There's so much research that shows that the combination of value and momentum is better than either alone. And so that just how you apply it or how you implement it, I don't think necessarily matters, but that's, that's our buds. Steve Sugarud's favorite setup is cheap hated and entering an uptrend, you know? So there, there's a lot of stuff that not as much stuff that's cheap and hated and not in an uptrend yet. It's almost all in some form of the commodity complex. So we, we did our annual, what should you ask for in your Christmas stocking last couple of years? And this year we didn't do it. And it's what's been down multiple years and truly hated. Two years ago is coal, which went up a ton. Uranium, which went up a, decent, a pretty good amount. It was like 20 or 50% or something. It pops and then there, it fell. It went like way that. up. It came back down yeah. then it went up again. And this year... I, I didn't publish anything, but it would probably be anything in the agricultural space that's been getting crushed for years, but not in an uptrend yet. But so much of the world is in an uptrend now. It's just a question. I, you know, I, I still think that there's a lot of room for the cheap countries to still have another good year. But the, the, the really hated stuff still seems to be the last participant seems to be the agriculture sector. Any particular way that you would recommend playing that? You know, you could go straight up with the commodities on something like Deutsche Bank's commodity indices and ETFs. You could try commodity stocks. I'm sure there's some plenty of ETFs that, that silo those. No pun intended. Those usually come with higher fees? No, not necessarily. 
All right. Next Twitter question. This is, um, I thought this was interesting. I'm not sure you have an answer for it, but uh, Meb, what changed in your investing philosophy in the last year? I think the older I get, I more and more, I'm just like, people should buy the global market portfolio with tilts and be done with it and spend zero time on investments. The more time they spend on investments, there's a quote in our tweets of the week. I think it's Fama. Said money is like soap. The more you handle it, the less you have, or something. So, so many people just muck around with their investment strategies and trading and implementation and do terrible behavioral things. That the less you get involved, the better. So, and having an automated approach to me is is and just not me- messing around with it and having it run itself is so much better than the alternative. So that that's for me changes and just gets more reinforced every year. And it to me, it doesn't even matter what your investing approach is that much. It could be buy and hold. It could be what we do at Trinity. It could be whatever, but having it automated and low cost and, and the impact of costs continually is, is reinforced in my mind, partially because I see so much junk out there. There's so much terrible options and choices in these funds out there that people still invest in. So I, I think that's the default. I also think I think early in my career I was I had a more of a disdainful view of cash. But I but I totally see cash as being a total a very reasonable buffer for a lot of people and anything that makes them behave better and gives them potentially some powder on the sidelines to weather their life, whether portfolio downturns, all that good stuff. Have you ever tried to model an average valuation for the global market portfolio to sort of be able to tell you when it's a good time to invest on a broad aggregate perspective? The, the nice thing is most, I mean, obviously lower valuations have higher expected returns, but so valuation on stocks is one thing, but global market portfolio I'm referring to includes bonds, commodities, real estate, everything. And Absolutely. And how, how, you, how you throw a valuation on commodities, et cetera, I'm not so, so certain. But if you look at overall asset classes, one of the benefits as, of diversification is they kind of zig and zag. So some years in different macro environments, some asset classes do great and others they don't. But over time, we go back to my old 521 rule. Equities historically have had real returns of about 5%, bonds two, bills one, and you a nice asset allocation gets you up to that 4 or 5% real historically. And it doesn't really matter what your asset allocation is so much. Of course, you add on inflation, you get that nominal 9 10% sort of returns. But I, I think that's probably been the biggest change. There's a lot of minor belief changes. So you know, the the examples we've had of the past year for private equity angel investments and the tax benefits, the examples we've written on on papers of value investing by avoiding yielders and, and taxes, I think is is interesting. So the importance of taxes and fees is, is one that is so boring, and but it's the basic blocking tackling that can still make a pretty big difference. Another Twitter question. Uh, you've kind of addressed this in the past, but I'm curious if you have any new take on it now. Value factors have been out of favor for a decade or however long. At what point can we say that they have been arbed out and are not coming back ever? I think, some, I think someone asked Cliff Asnes something about an anomaly 
and whether it works anymore or not. He said, you know, it, it, it should work everywhere, i.e. in most countries around the world, and then it should, should work over various time frames, and, you know, we'll probably need 50 years to convince me that it doesn't work anymore. So it's long, longer than probably you and I investing lifetimes uh, from here on out. So it seems to me like it still works great in globally, and in certain areas, it just but but that's what sets the stage. Any underperformance, outperformance is what sets the stage for it to outperform. So if you look at the late '90s, value underperformed growth and market cap and everything else by a mile for the second half of the '90s. But then it, that set the stage for value to have monster outperformance for the first half of the decade in the 2000s, just massive outperformance. And a lot of the markets in the U.S. now resemble the '90s in many ways. So that's what makes this fun. And that's what makes it possible is you have these oscillations and shifts that change and wash around to where, you know, one market sets the stage for another and, and yada, yada, ad finium. Sort of a follow up to that. Another Twitter question was asking you to explain why the value premium works. I think it's simple. I mean, I think the example I love to give like four years ago where... There's two parts, two sides of the same coin. One, the stuff that's going down, no one wants to buy. So that creates a lot of value opportunities. If you look at a couple of years ago when I was giving speeches on all these countries that were so cheap, no one wants to buy those. And they literally just a couple of years ago being like, hey, you should be buying emerging markets. And people just look at you as if you're so stupid. But on the flip side is what does everyone get attracted to? They get attracted to these lottery tickets the Teslas of the world that just explode in value, right? And they are some of the best performing stocks of all time. But the problem is you can't identify those characteristics ahead of time. So if you were to buy a basket of those stocks, the results are very poor and they do very poorly. But everyone will always be attracted to them because you can always point to the one that hits the moon and has multi-hundred or thousand percent returns. And so you have just, it's a, it's a behavioral feature of the market. No one wants value stocks. Everyone wants the lottery tickets because that's what seems to work. But if you do it in a shotgun format, it absolutely is the opposite. So I, I don't see now, now that having been said, the more and more money that's going into any investment strategy will diminish the edge. You know, so we change, we always talk about flows changing factors. So if you look at dividend investing, you know, where that had a very real edge in the late 90s because it was a huge valuation discount to the overall market, whereas many dividend stocks are more expensive than the overall market now because money is chased into dividend stocks for the past 17 years. So that changes the opportunity set. At some point, will dividend be an attractive factor? Probably. But if you look at all the research that Research Affiliates does with talking about factors, and you kind of got to be agnostic, say, hey, look, I like all these factors, but at some point, some are really expensive, and some point, the basket are really cheap, and that's based on money just washing around. So I don't expect the value premium to to ever go away. I expect it probably to be a lot of the. Um, you should listen to this podcast with Ted Sides and Michael Malbison. There's two hardest names pronounced on the planet, by the way. But Ted's Capital Allocators podcast had had Malbison on it. And he was talking about, you know, the example of why aren't there any more 400 hitters and Ted Williams being, you know, the last 400 hitter. 
and it happened a lot more frequently back then. And, and a lot of it is, is the talent across the board has gotten a lot better. And so the volatility of and standard deviation of potential returns is, is condensed. And so you probably have a lot of the quant shops like LSV, AQR, uh, not DFA, but also DE Shaw, all these that have the multi-factor models that are compressed, the easy low hanging fruit. So you may not have as, as much outliers anymore. So it's a little bit harder, but I, on a macro level, I can't fathom it ever getting to the point where it's, it's totally gone because people keep acting human. seems like the, the voices that are calling for the death of value investing are really loud and very sort of convinced in their position. I wonder if this is the same for any factor at all time or if value itself is connoting or if it is bringing about. Are there, are there even any voices calling for this? Or Yeah, I've read. I mean, remember, this, we, we discussed this four months ago, five months ago, and this was literally the title of something in Barron's or wherever it was, which was the death of value investing. This is, yeah, I've heard this a bunch. Have you not? Mm-mm. I mean, I mean, I hear people like referring to, you know, Wes talking about the value pain train and value not doing that great. But, but look globally, values crushed expensive markets for three years in a row. Okay. So it's working somewhere. All right. Let's get two more and then call it a day here. Let you get out of here to go to Japan. One question was asking about uh, your take on green bonds or sustainability investment instruments. Uh, Where do they fit in within an asset allocation model? You know, on one hand, they're not a speculation, but uh, they're also not necessarily core. How do you how do you view it? So there's a lot wrapped in in that. I mean, I, I'm I'm fairly agnostic. If someone wants to put their tilt or screen on investments, I'm fine with that. If someone says, "Look, I want to eliminate all tobacco companies," or "I want to do ESG," or "I want to do green bonds," I want to do any of that. I'm fine with that. It it just by nature reduces your breadth of opportunity set. So it doesn't mean you have to have a bad opportunity set. It just means it's going to be smaller. So if you have 10,000 stocks, you may now have five. Is that enough stocks to pick from? Absolutely. You could use your screen. So you're only buying 200 anyway, so it's not going to really matter. Mathematically, it, re- it makes your potential returns not as optimal as they were with more choices, but I'm fine with it. I mean, the bigger challenge, I think, is a lot of the ESG and I think Paul Tudor Jones coming out with the Just Index for just companies and all, all these slants, you got a question, is it a marketing angle used to sell me a product for a higher fee? Or is it something that actually is aligned with my interests, whether it be LGBT, whether it be ESG, whether it be whatever it is, I'm fine with it. But realize by nature, what you're doing is reducing the opportunity set. But it's not, it's not necessarily a, a bad thing. Last question. What is the long-term mean or hurdle for real U.S. Treasury rates? I think it depends on the time frame you're looking at. Are you going back 20 years, 50 years, 100 years? Uh, what is the average yield or median yield on a real basis? The real return on 10-year bonds globally was that 2% number when I was saying 521 rule. So 2%. But what the nominal or real yield over time is, I think it depends on what countries you're looking at and what time frame. I could find out in the U.S., for example, but I'm, I imagine it's not a whole lot. Well, that's it. Okay. Anything on your end? No, that's it. <laughs> if you're in Japan, come say hi. We'll, we'll go watch a sumo match, chat markets, have a... Japan's actually got a pretty good craft beer scene now. 
How much snow do they have right now? Tons. Over 300 inches already, which is more than most U.S. resorts get all year. Meb had a big day yesterday, listeners. He uh, received an ungodly amount of um, packages from Amazon, some of which were his new skis. I bought a Glen Plake style ski bag. Do you want to explain who that is? Do you know who Glen Plake is? I know exactly who he is. He was was one of my idols growing up. uh, He's a famous skier with the big mohawk. He was the guy with the mohawk, yeah. Yeah. You anyway, know who Scott Schmidt was. He uh, he's still around, but he had a ski bag that's fluorescent green, by the way. But it doesn't have any pockets. I bought it. It doesn't have any pockets. What's the whole point? What do you do with all your stuff? Anyway, got a lot of got a lot of uh, hand warmers. It's, it's actually really cold in Japan, which is one of the reasons the snow is so good. We'll be in Hokkaido. Anyway, listeners, enough jibber jabber. Thanks for taking the time. Listen today, as always. You can find show notes podcast links to the almost 100 podcasts now at mebfavor.com forward slash podcast leave us a review on itunes we read all of them they're up to almost 300 now we'll have to read some of the funnier ones on air here coming up soon and good investing <laughs>